1: Hello,
2: my name's Jess Phillips and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Dame Jacqueline Wilson is an author known for her popular children's literature. Over the course of her career, she has written over 100 books, including the Tracy Beaker and Hetty Feather series. Her novels have been celebrated for featuring social issues such as adoption, homelessness and mental health in a way that's accessible to young readers. This spring, she released Baby Love, a novel for older readers. Today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, hello Jacqueline, how are you? Do you always go by Jacqueline or is it Jackie or...?
3: Either. Jacqueline because it's the actual name on my books and I find children still call me Jacqueline Wilson all in one go.
2: (laughs) So this podcast is all about letter writing. And in my head, I assume you're a prolific letter writer. Is that the case? Or you were?
3: I still am, in that some of the people that before you could send emails, um, we, we corresponded by letter. And originally, lots of lovely children who read my books would write to me on little bits of paper. And Long ago I used to try to write back to every single one but that became a bit too problematic and so I would just look for the ones who were quirky or or poorly or worried about something and write back to them and now some of those because we corresponded and I wrote back to the ones that were particularly interesting or needy or we're still corresponding buy letters or I like to buy really interesting cards or whatever. And it's part of the fun. And so I still have quite a lot of people that I write letters to. And of course, emails as well, communicating with people is, is a good thing to do. And I love reading sort of famous writer's letters. And I mean, it gives you such a chatty, informal side of them. And uh, it's so interesting. So yeah,
2: Famous people's letters. I mean, I studied history at university and so much of what we know about much of history has come from the letter writing of the people of the time. I love reading when people put up like rejection letters from like, like George Orwell's re- rejection letters or something. It's just absolutely brilliant. I love the reading letters of yesteryear. They're, they are brilliant. And people's love letters, the way people used to write to each other. I can't imagine my husband... Writing to me like Byron wrote to people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you got any like specific letters of note? We've had people who've had letters from... We had. The, I had my first one last week where someone had a letter from the Queen. or the ladies in waiting. That's what you need for all your letters. You need some ladies in waiting. The Queen has got the right idea.
3: I have had letters from Buckingham Palace because I was once a children's laureate and for the Queen's 80th birthday... I don't think the Queen necessarily decided it, but someone thought it would be a really good idea, sort of opening the grounds of Buckingham Palace to the people. And why not children? And they decided to make great thing about children's books and so they invited loads of different authors and they had fantastic set up things like they had a huge table from Alice in Wonderland set with all the different things that they might have they had sort of a Winnie the Pooh forest place I mean they had so many different things and about 18 different famous authors there and I just thought this is very jolly But then I hadn't realised that because I was the current children's laureate, that it would be my job to actually introduce all my fellow authors to the Queen. And I had about 10 minutes to go (laughs) before she was actually arriving. And I panicked and I thought, dear God. And so in a typical old-fashioned British way, I looked round and found a policeman, one of the security policemen. And I said, oh gosh, I've got to do this. What do I do? What do I do with the Queen? How do I address her and everything? He was wonderful and very reassuring. And then my other problem was that I knew exactly who most of the authors were, like J.K. Rowling or Philip Pullman or Michael Morpurgo, but there were some I really didn't have a clue. And nothing is more insulting to an author to have somebody who's probably not as well known as they are say, excuse me, who are you? So I ran up and down the queue saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so nervous. Everything's gone out of my head. Of course I know who you are. Could you remind me? <laughs> Then I had to try terribly hard to concentrate on the names. And then somebody said, she's coming, she's coming. So i had to dash back to the, the front and then wait there and manage a curtsy. And then, I hope, manage to do all the introductions. And then you say your majesty the first time. And then very sensibly, you call her ma'am. Ma'am, but not mom. Ma'am and,
2: rhymes with ham. Yes. That's what someone told me to say. Ma'am rhymes with ham.
3: And and we managed to get to the end of the line, um, and that was fine. But then I had to accompany her to the next place where she was going to be meeting people. And we were walking along, and I thought, oh, God, am I meant to address her? I thought you actually, you're meant to wait for the Queen to address you, but it seemed so uncomfortable. And so, (laughs) eventually, I said... um, Are you enjoying the experience, ma'am? And she looked at me and she said, well, it's interesting. (laughs) So, I mean, I thought, how gallant, because, you know, it possibly wasn't the idea. When when I get to be 80, which isn't too far away, I don't think I'd want to be greeting 2,000 children in my own garden, quite frankly. I
2: mean, I struggle with the two. And the Queen had four, so she's long in the tooth. All those protocols you're meant to do with the royal family, I don't think that they're that bothered by them. You know, like if you don't do it, you wait to address them. I remember I was told once when I was meeting Prince Charles that I was never to turn my back on him and that I had to back away, like walk backwards, like I was doing the moonwalk or something. I was like, I'm going to look ridiculous if I do this. And so I didn't do it. And obviously he was not bothered at all. They don't care.
3: People do get in a weird state about the royals, though. It's very strange. And I read that loads and loads of people have dreams about the royal family. And I thought this very, very odd. But then bizarrely, for no reason whatsoever, I had a dream that I was on a bus with Princess Anne and a nun. Now, I mean... Come along, Dr. Freud. Please explain that one. (laughs) We've got the beginning
2: of a great joke. We've got to work. We need to workshop what the brilliant joke is. is.
3: Exactly.
2: (laughs) What do you have to do as the laureate?
3: Well, you have to undertake to do various events, which I was used to doing but I thought I can't just have events just all about me and I'm, I'm recommending yes you must read read these sort of things so <laughs> I tried very hard to be fair and and have lots of variety of books and then the idea, too, was to go to um, places which wouldn't necessarily be the sort of places where children who love reading would fetch up. And I think the most memorable time of all was I went to a sort of May fair at the seaside because there were lots of children there, and it was thought it would be a good idea if they had an author there, because I think they'd had a, a come as a book character theme. And I was led around all the, the fair things first. Uh, I felt like the Queen My, myself, you know, be, having some ni- nice counsellor or Lord Mayor or whatever taking me around. And then there was this big enclosure with some sort of very large rodents in it (laughs) and they were ferrets and they had been betting on ferret racing which didn't really seem like may May queen time (laughs) but i thought okay and there was the ferret handler and he was letting the children hold the ferrets and i thought okay again and he saw me and he came towards me i thought oh no no please no and he said evil grin would would you like to hold the ferret and I thought well I've got to hold the ferret and I was wearing a brand new turquoise dress and I thought I don't know what this ferret to use me as a ferret toilet so I held the ferret out so it wouldn't get anywhere near my dress if it actually peed or pooed. And there it was. And it obviously, poor little animal, felt very insecure. So it turned its head and bit me very sharply on my right hand, which was very alarming and my lovely publicist Naomi was with me and she was very concerned but also looked at my right hand said Jackie it's your signing hand and I was due to be led off and sign but the super driver Bob at that time who when I was quite grand uh, drove and said don't you worry, Jacqueline. I've got just the thing. And I thought Bob cannot possibly have sort of anti-ferret bite cream. But he got some some just antiseptic thing, and we rubbed it on. And I've survived <laughs> to tell the tale. But I did think I ought to. You know the way posh people or uh, rock stars have riders about what yeah. they <laughs> must have or can't have. And ferrets. I thought no ferrets <laughs> must be first on mine.
2: If you had been the queen, that ferret handler would have been done for treason. Um, So I've asked you to think about three different people who've had an effect on your life and think about the letters that you would write to them. So the first one is the person who means the world to you. So who would you pick for that?
3: Well, I've been kind of predictable because I've chosen my partner, Trish. I think that's not that
2: predictable. You're like
3: only actually
2: like the third person who's chosen their partner. Everybody chooses their mom.
3: Oh, I certainly wouldn't do something. <laughs> I couldn't say that because she's hasn't been with us for a long, long time, and people always think I'm dreadful unless they knew my mum and just said, "Aha!" <laughs> so, no, not my mum, but my partner. Why I'm talking about her, partly because I love her dearly, but also, I mean, I was married for a long time and then that ended. And then I was single for about six years and that was okay, a bit lonely, but okay. I made lots more new friends and worked very hard. But then I met Trish when I was 59. So I'm basically talking about this to show that anybody who is middle-aged and their marriage has broken up, and it's exactly the wrong time for women because it's just when you're feeling tired out and you've got to cope with the menopause and all the rest of it. And, you know, you feel, "Mm, I'm probably not going to meet anybody else ever and then just like magic i certainly wasn't looking for a woman particularly i met her and we just fell for each other and so i want to say don't give up ladies you know if you do want to find a partner you just never know what you might find and we've been well it sounds sickening if you say blissfully happily for the last 18 or so years because if you're not with somebody you always think well it's all right for you but I mean I I had a long time when you know I didn't have anybody and I just want to show that it doesn't matter if you get a bit old and wrinkly
2: (laughs) (laughs) my nan married the love of her life when she was 70
3: really Really? Oh, how wonderful.
2: Yeah, she was married very young to sort of escape desperate poverty and horrible aunts who she'd been forced to go in, like, in servitude, live in servitude in their Victorian house. And uh, she married my granddaddy, who was... I liked him, but he was a rogue and they got divorced in the 1950s, which was unheard of. She didn't have anyone till the 1970s. And then she met my uncle Fred and married him and he was the love of her life. She died when she was 95. So she had 25 good years with him.
3: Oh, how wonderful.
2: Yeah. I always think about my nan when my friends are like, I'm in my late 30s and I haven't got anyone. I think you've got ages to wait till you find the love of your life then, because my nan found it at 70. Oh,
3: good for your nan. How lovely. (laughs) Nan, yeah,
2: Bless her. So Trish and you have been together for 18 years. How many years were you married?
3: I was married over 30 years. I got married very young when I was 19, rather for the sort of same reasons as your nan, because I'd left home and my parents hadn't actually said anything, but I think they were just waiting to split up themselves, both having affairs with other people. And I don't think I... It would have worked if I'd gone back home. I was living in Dundee as a young journalist and not earning much money. And, you know, this guy came along and we we got on okay. I wouldn't actually say he was the total love of my life but he was you know a perfectly fine man just we were worlds apart i mean you know my grandma did say to me are you sure you know what you're doing why don't you wait till you're about 25 or so which now i think is the best advice ever then i thought oh god she's so weird (laughs) and so we married at 19 and my lovely daughter when i was 21 And then, I mean, he was a policeman, he was out a great deal of the time, or if he wasn't working, he was out drinking with his mates. It was a very old-fashioned, traditional sort of marriage. And I think it went on okay, possibly until I started to become not famous, but a little bit well-known. Because up till then, he didn't mind a bit. You know, he would say, oh, my wife Jackie, yes, she writes a bit. And, And that was that. But when suddenly, if we were out somewhere and somebody said, oh my goodness, are you Jacqueline Wilson? He didn't like that at all. Well, how can I speak for him? I don't know what was going on in his head. But I think at that stage, he possibly thought, do I want this? Maybe not. And so it was a classic thing, he had an affair with somebody else. And I always thought, you know, how come wives don't ever realise what was going on? But I didn't realise at all until somebody else indicated when I was talking about him and being busy and out all the time. And she just looked at me in a pitying way and I thought, oh God, oh God. (laughs) So I tackled him about it and it all came out. So we split up and it was horrible, but it was also, I thought, well, I'm going to get through this and I worked much harder. I was very glad that Emma had just about gone to university. So there wasn't any sort of worry about, you know, who's having custody, the kids, etc. And I wasn't that well known, but I was making enough money to think, well, yeah, I can feed myself and clothe myself. And I still had the house. So it wasn't anywhere near as traumatic as it would be for for somebody in different circumstances and I really do think my career sort of went upwards then (laughs) because I worked so hard I went out to so many different schools you know sometimes three in a week and doing four sessions so that by the fourth session you would think you know take a deep breath and think have I just said that and and you'd look at the children and they'd all start to look the same Um, (laughs) but it, it was a good thing to do because it, you know, took me out of myself. And then at the weekends, I think the weekends, the difficult time for newly single people, because that's often family time. So I started, Oh, I, I went on a sort of, tours of london and did an architectural course and i did an art history course and then i also went line dancing for a bit of fun so i did did all these new different things as well as carrying on writing and and they were good years and yeah i'm very glad i had those years because really i hadn't had any time living on my own before and it gave me time to find out well, what do I like to eat or what I like to watch on telly or whatever? Because when you're with somebody, and particularly in quite an old-fashioned marriage, it was just what fits in with the family. So, yeah, it was a learning experience, Jess. And where did
2: you meet Trish
3: then? Oh, it was at a publishing conference and she came to my rescue. She was like my Mr Darcy or whatever in that I didn't really talk to her, in the evening when the conference was going on but then in the morning at breakfast I didn't really know anybody and so I went down To the breakfast room and it had one of those coffee machines I am useless I'm the least practical person ever and I tried to uh, make myself a cup of coffee and the coffee just went straight up my sleeve and she had been watching me with some friends and thought oh goodness is nobody taking care of her because she was a bookshop manager and always very very sort of concerned about any author. And so she came rushing up and said, oh, you know, please let me help you. I think she even called me Miss Wilson, which was very funny. So she got me my coffee and made sure I had some breakfast and then said do come and sit with us. And she was very kind. And it was a a lovely sort of breakfast meeting, which seems bizarre now because she's hopeless early in the morning and generally will just grunt. But she was very chatty and I was very chatty too. And we started one of those odd conversations where you compare what your favourite book, what's your favourite film, all this sort of thing. And it was very pleasant. And then she had to go off to her meeting and I had to try and get the hotel to order me a taxi and get me back to the railway station and she saw me waiting there and she came up and hugged me and said it's been lovely to meet you now I was astonished because you know I'm not used to people hugging me if only I'd known Trish hugs one in three people that she ever meets. So you can not <laughs> special. No, it wasn't special at all. But um, I thought, oh, she's so nice, and so I got in touch with her because I knew where she worked. I can't believe I was so bold. And so for quite a while, we just sort of had days in London where we go to art galleries or something like that. But we talked non-stop all the time. I think that's the the best test of whether you get on with someone whether you you just chat away and chat away and chat away and there seemed to be no awkward pauses or anything and so eventually we got together it took us I think when you're much older you're quite cautious about you know young people think oh this this person's great and after a fortnight let's move in together you don't do that when you're older but we did move in together and it's been more or less plain sailing ever since. I can't believe the couples that say we've never had a crossword because we
2: How had boring crosswords. that to me. I have a crossword on a near daily basis, but I love my husband.
3: Yes. I mean that's <laughs> that's it. So and it's been great.
2: And does Trish still run a bookshop?
3: No, she doesn't run a bookshop. Um Very luckily for me, she decided, bookshops, the whole concept of them were changing, and whereas she used to be able to have control over the books she stocked, the authors that came to the store, the windows, suddenly she was told exactly how to do it. And uh, she's rather an opinionated woman, so she didn't like that. So I said, look, come on, why, why don't you take early retirement, which was on offer. And I'm very glad we did it this way around, because about six months later, when she was doing bits and pieces and still thinking of doing something rather part time, I got ill. I had rather alarming heart failure. And after I'd had an operation and everything, I needed quite a bit of nursing. So it was wonderful that she didn't work then, but I would have felt bad if she'd been working up to that moment and had to give up her job. And it was absolutely incredible because because I was very weak at first, she would get up first and make me breakfast in bed. And guess what she still does? Oh
2: my gosh. This is a good <laughs> habit. It's almost worth the heart failure, that. It
3: it was, it was. <laughs> and and so she's she does everything about the house and the garden and feeds the chickens and is major sort of mummy for the dog. And I just sit and say thank you very much and write. <laughs> so it's a bit unequal, but I'm, I'm very blessed.
2: I'm totally blessed by the same, and I, I it's totally unequal. My husband has to, like, tell me, like, where the dustpan and brush is and things like that. I haven't got a clue. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I've got other things on my mind. But, yeah, I mean, heart failure, it's, it's unusual to, for women to talk about heart failure, and this is a real problem, isn't it, is that it's still considered to be a man's disease, uh, and lots of women don't look out for the signs of it. Because all of the known signs of heart problems that we're told about are actually how it presents in men, not in women. And so women don't often know what to look for and things. So that must have been terrifying.
3: Well, I thought I was just being a hypochondriac at first because I got this heavy feeling across my chest and I was much tireder than usual, but I kept on going. And then when I went to the surgery that I used to go to long ago, um, I don't, they were very nice, but they didn't take it quite seriously and just thought, oh, you know, middle aged women. But luckily, I eventually got one doctor who took the proper blood test and then panicked a bit. And I found myself having tests and then an emergency patient in the Brompton. It was all very dramatic. But we had decided to have a civil partnership by that time. And we decided there was a wonderful woman in Vermont who had Put up some sign on the internet about you know if you don't want to faff about a wedding or you just want somewhere quite quiet but beautiful why don't you come to vermont and i will have a magistrate come and organize your civil partnership and then you can stay in my lovely hotel and there's beautiful mountains and all sorts of things to do and you know it sounded wonderful So we wrote them, we booked it all in, and then I had all the heart problems. But it wasn't going to be for another two or three months, wonderfully, so that was fine. But what she said is, will you please tell me what your wedding vows will be? And uh, I, I couldn't quite understand it, but then I suppose if they were slightly inappropriate or too gushy for words, they would maybe politely suggest you do you know tweak it a bit so when we actually wrote our vows it was the night before my operation to get fitted with a defibrillator so we were in the right mood for it we really were and they were sort of heartfelt vows and then when you know our big moment came the women who run the hotel and the magistrate said oh we've never had such lovely vows and it's all it was a beautiful beautiful ceremony so that was great
2: I mean, the whole inspiration for this podcast came because I wrote letters to my family because I was exposed to so many people dying of COVID um, in the early pandemic Um, and people just not knowing, like, you know, one day putting... A relative in an ambulance and then never seeing them again dreadful, um dreadful, just dreadful. dreadful but it does it focuses your mind doesn't it the uh, the idea that you're going in to have an operation will focus your mind about the things that matter to you and so i'm not surprised that i wouldn't suggest it for everybody who's trying to write meaningful vows, <laughs> but still good so how would you sign off a letter to trish
3: it's a difficult one. I won't go all gushy. And nothing is more embarrassing than, do you remember in The Guardian, they used to have uh, Valentine's Day messages and, you know, it was, oh, you know, all love to Big Bear from Bunny Rabbit. and all, <laughs> it's, it's rubbish. Um, I think I'll plump for all my love, your Jay. How about Aww. that? <laughs>
2: I'm so dis- I'm so delighted in the idea of you know falling in love at at 59.
3: Yeah, <laughs> so was I. I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, it just feels so like what are the chances that the right people are in the right place at the same time? Do you know what I mean? I, I just feel like it's a miracle anyone falls in love with anybody. Is but yet it happens all the time. So the second letter I asked you to think about, the second person, was somebody who's
3: no longer with us. So who would you pick for that letter? This, I kind of cheated. I hope you don't mind. In that this person is my daughter and she is, thank goodness, still with us. And I'm still very close to her. But now we hardly see each other she lives in cambridge i live on the coast in east sussex it's a very long journey we occasionally manage to be up in london and once or twice a year she'll she'll come and stay for a couple of days but the thing is that it's a weird thing you're you see your child m- nearly every day until they're about 18 and they might go off to university or they might you know move away somewhere altogether, perhaps not so much now.
2: No, it's less so these days.
3: But certainly this is what Emma did. And of course, we're still very close, but she's no longer my little girl. And I mean, I don't want her to be, it would be bizarre, but we were very, very close when she was young. And because I was young too, I I didn't get bored with the endless games of playing shop or, you know, getting a doll's dressed and undressed. I mean, I quite like playing these sorts of games anyway. And we had a great time together. And then she was really... A strange child because she didn't mind a bit. She quite liked going to museums and art galleries. And I hadn't really ever done that as a child. But so we were both of us learning our way around together. And then going to by the time she was about 10, she liked going to those sort of free lectures you get at the National Gallery or places like that. And we we liked it in very different ways in that she was born to be the academic she now is, and she wanted it all done systematically, the centuries taking place logically one after the other. She learnt all the difficult, say Italian names She was very, very sort of clever at remembering everything. But we both loved looking at the paintings, basically. So we both got a lot out of it. And then we both could be quite greedy and so we wouldn't have a proper lunch if we were having a day in London we'd find the very best cafe with the best cakes and and, and just have a slice of cake for lunch not a good example to my daughter but never mind and she enjoyed that too and I'd never really found somebody that liked some of the same things that I liked but also she liked different things as well and I am passionate about the Victorians now, but it was really because I'd read Emma some Victorian books. And I think, well, it's more Edwardian, but do you remember there was a programme called Upstairs Downstairs?
2: I do, yes.
3: Well, one time when she was about four, um, I was vaguely awake and I could hear muttering downstairs in the kitchen and a little clatter. And I thought, oh, how sweet, she's trying to make breakfast. And so I listened to her. And I heard her say in a cross voice, now, Ruby, now, that is very slovenly of you. And then she said, sorry, Mrs. Bridges. It was just a sweet thing. I hadn't even realised that she'd been, I mean, the programme was on while she was still around, but I hadn't realised she'd been listening to it like this. So we've always sort of shared this fun. Games together. And then also, she liked writing too. And then she was always determined she was never ever going to write books, particularly for children. Very wisely, I think. You don't want to do what your mum does or your dad does. But we, used to write each other bits of Victorian stories. She might start it, I carry on, and then we carry on like a serial story. And I learned far more about the Victorians doing this, so that now if I write a Victorian book, like the Hetty Feather books or whatever, I do check my facts, but I don't really have to do any research, which I don't really enjoy doing, because because everything that we used to do, going to Victorian buildings or looking at Victorian art, so it was fine. And she's an academic now? She is. She is a professor, which considering that her dad left school at 15 and her mum left school at 16 and it wasn't due to us pushing her and everything. She she's the only child I've ever known that didn't have to be told to do her homework. She wanted to do it. I would like a
2: child like that.
3: (laughs) It does make her sound a bit revolting. I mean, she she went through her surly teens too, but uh, it's just she's got this passion for learning and still has. So
1: she's a professor at Cambridge.
3: She is. Yes. My gosh. I I know. But she's nice. She's normal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure lots of them are
3: nice and normal. And what's she a professor of? Her official title is she's a professor of French literature and the visual arts, because as well as teaching 19th and 20th century French, she also teaches a bit about French art. And she also teaches French film. And in fact, that's branched out into all sorts of other different films as well. So, you know, she's got a, a sort of several different things that she does, which is nice for her because if you just hone in on one quite narrow subject, you might feel a bit jaded at times. But no, I mean, she, she loves her job and she doesn't have any children herself never really wanted to be a mother but she's very maternal uh, as far as I can tell towards her students
2: do you think if you she'd had children you might have seen much more of her like I basically rekindled my relationship not that I'd fallen out with them or anything but when I had my I was like you I was young when I had my children and Like, I just don't feel like I could have done it without my parents' help, frankly.
3: I I Um, would certainly have been up for, you know, having grandchildren to stay and, and everything. I'd be a little bit careful, though, because I had a terribly controlling mother. I had no money when Emma was born And she insisted on buying all Emma's clothes and everything, but her taste, not mine. And it was kind of her to do this, but annoying of her just deliberately to get Emma the things that she thought was right. I mean, that was one of the joys of actually starting to make some money from my writing in that, you know, I could confer with Emma. And if she liked something right, you know, we could buy it. And that was great.
2: Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right when you say you have to be careful about it, because I don't have a single example where this hasn't been the case in myself and all my friends. There's this horrible thing that happens when you have your own baby with the sort of like you're trying to like, you know, you're trying to assert yourself as a new mom. And if you're young, it's quite hard. My mom was an absolute diamond and very, very kind to me. But there is still this sort of level of dominance of, how you should be doing things. And so it is it's a bit of a minefield, I think, being the, the mom of a, a daughter who's had a baby, let alone being the mom of the son who's had a baby. You've got to do that all with the, the woman as well. And that's very tense.
3: That must be quite difficult too.
2: <laughs> I love my mother in law. I'd just like to say she's one of my favourite people, but you know there were some there were some tense moments. Um but yeah so I suspect that maybe you would you know, you might have seen a bit more of her had she needed to lean on you for that. So you see each other once or twice a year. Would you like it to be more?
3: more? More than once or twice a year. I would say six, six times, maybe seven times a year. That is lovely. And I always look forward to meeting her. What is good though, is that, I mean... I've got so much to do writing that it's quite hard to find a time when I am free. She has got so much to do with all the university work and everything that... So it's it's hard for us to coordinate. If she wasn't as committed to her job and I wasn't working at all, it would be harder in a way. But we both understand. It's not because we don't want to see each other. It's because it it's difficult.
2: Mm, it is. And actually... I think that the thing you spend your whole life, I, I certainly do, trying to ba- basically build my children up to be independent and to want them to leave and want them to feel confident. I mean, sometimes I literally just want them to leave, but um, <laughs> to go out into the world. And then, yeah, you know, sort of. I hope that then I don't become like possessive and cry when they're gone. But that's the whole point, isn't it, is to let them go. The whole point of parenting is to raise children to let them go
3: absolutely and yet it is it's hard when they go because you you feel a bit embarrassed of telling anybody oh, I miss them so much because you do sound like a like a possessive mum and you're thrilled to bits that they've gone off and they're doing their own thing and everything but it, it takes a long time I think before you you get into the swing of no it's a different relationship now but it's still lovely and the best thing of all is that now if we're out having a day out in London, Emma is the one who might arrange lunch. Emma is the one that comes to my station to meet me. And if we're crossing a busy road, I feel her hand under my elbow. So I'm being the one looked after, which is lovely. Yes, totally.
2: It's like the role reversal. It is lovely. I, like, ring my dad and, like, make sure that, like, you know, he's done things. Like, have you got, have you got that appointment? Like, and I'm like that. It's like what he used to do to me. Like, have you, have you made that appointment with college? Have you done this? Have you done that? And it's now, yeah, it is a role reversal. But having said that, I still behave like a teenager often when I'm around him. Um, I'm like, oh, dad. That doesn't seem to go away. So how would you sign off your letter to lovely Emma?
3: Uh, probably it would be very kind of mumsy you know keep safe try not to work too hard darling oh my love mama
2: <laughs> that's what my dad always says to me just you know just just be safe just be safe like it's an obsession i'm like oh, i'll try we'll be back for jacqueline's final letter after a short break in the meantime why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely
0: Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender, as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: So, the final letter I ask you and the person I ask you to think about is somebody who has had an effect on your life but has no idea of the effect that they've had. So, who would that be?
3: Well, this is going to be a shot to her, but it's near me, my publicist.
2: Oh, how lovely!
3: We've worked together for so many years, and apart from Trish and Emma, she's the only person that knows me through and through. And when we started off working together, it was still in the days when she had to drive me round everywhere in the car and find our way to the venue and the hotel she had to do the whole bit and how she managed not to tell me to shut up because i i'm a natterer and in a car particularly i seem to do it whenever we were in a difficult traffic thing or she had to get in another lane and i think i was trying to reassure her by chattering away and of course i mean what she needed to do was concentrate where she was Going. And so I was a nightmare. And this was days before Sat Nav. And so I am the world's useless navigator. I have no sense of direction whatsoever. And I also get car sick if I peer at a map. So that uh, basically, poor Nemi, it was must like taking a giant child with her <laughs> everywhere she went. And sometimes, you know, events would go on forever because I did really long signings then. And then when we were both exhausted, we had to try and find some obscure hotel. And, you know, sometimes we got lost a bit. And then another time when we had to drive a long way from one venue to another, I had noticed that Naomi at breakfast time hadn't eaten very much, but she said, I'm fine, fine, Chucky, don't worry, fine. And then we were driving along and I was nattering as usual and Naomi was quite quiet and then she just suddenly drew up and said, excuse me just a moment, got out and was very, very cleverly, neatly sick. <laughs> and <laughs> then got in again and said, sorry about that. <laughs> and then she <laughs> drove to the hotel. And then she said, Jackie, I'm so sorry, but I think I'm going to have to go to bed. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to phone this lovely rep and he will take you to the event and look after you. And I promise you I'll be better in the morning. So I said, of course, darling, of course. And, and she was better in the morning and it was all fine. But I thought dear god you know she 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 hadn't complained you know I feel ill i i i've got a migraine whatever she just got on with it and and i mean the lovely thing is that we tend to have the same sense of humor and mostly events have always gone smoothly but if you arrive somewhere and you think "Mm, it's going to be a bit odd and the sound system isn't working and there's no chair even though she's requested it because you know i get a bit dicky if i stand on my feet for hours and she will try very hard and very tactfully and not in all bodily to the organizers get it all perfect and then when I'm doing a signing, you know, there, there might be somebody quite troublesome. In fact, one hysterical mother actually attacked her, which was appalling because she very gently suggested that her child who hadn't got a book and had just barged in might actually be better off going to the back of the queue and and she she was shouting and shouting and you know get all spittle and everything and I, I i i grabbed the book said here signed, gave it to her. But I thought, dear God, how awful to have to sort of fend off people like that. And then we've also met some wonderfully well-meaning people, but have been a little odd in some ways. And, you know, just a flicker of a glance, which means, it's okay, Jackie, I'll try and get this under control, but never mind, I'll buy you a huge drink afterwards. It means the world. Basically like being
2: a a member of parliament, doing a book signing. And I often, when I have to do it, it turns into like a surgery where people are asking me questions about government policy or their drop curbs. Um, But yeah, there's there's all sorts of characters, isn't there? So uh, yeah, I'm not surprised you've come across some odd people.
3: Mostly hasten to add that they've been lovely. And, um, you know, sometimes I think we both possibly have a memory of a particular librarian conference where four unlikely people dressed up in full costume as ABBA <laughs> and <laughs> sang Waterloo, which was, well, a memorable moment. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Never a dull moment at a librarian conference, said no one ever. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. So, I mean, obviously she'll now know that, she, you know, she means the world to you. I know, Um, she's
3: sitting in the room. (laughs) It's
2: like awkward.
3: (laughs) That's so nice. I mean, and how many years have you worked together? It's at least 25. It might even be 30. Yes. So, you know, she always knows exactly, you know, how things will work, and and it's so reassuring. And I know Trish, who can be very sort of protective and worries about me if I go off and do lots of things. She always would say, "Well, at least I know Nem is going to look after you." So that's why. I mean, twenty-five years to have the to same publicist—that is a. She's been in different roles but always to do with children's books and always to me. And in fact, one time, I mean, during that time, she's managed very cleverly and neatly to have two lovely boys who are now grown up. But when she had her second boy, because she lives a long way from that office, she did say she might very sadly have to leave. And wonderfully, that particular publisher said well how do you feel about working part-time and just working with Jackie and uh, wonderfully for me she said yes and I said yes please yes please and um, it's been like that ever since
2: how brilliant so how would you sign off a letter to Naomi your brilliant publicist
3: (laughs) I would say thank you so much Naomi you've been a star as always take care (laughs)
2: Lots of love, Jackie. Well, Jackie, it has been Jacqueline Wilson. I'm going to say it like that. Uh, it has been a total pleasure to listen to uh, you pay tribute to all the women in your life, it seems. Um I always like it when everybody picks, when somebody picks all women. And so to the women in your life who all sound jolly, impressive and caring and kind. Thank you so much for sharing your letters with us. And thank you for all your books. Um, and thank you for being the only person so far who has made my son go like, ah! at the excitement that you were in our conservatory on Zoom. <laughs>
3: I'm so pleased, Jess. And well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's just like two women chatting over the cup of coffee.
2: Yeah, indeed. I also hug more than one in three people.
3: Do you? Oh, well, it's a lovely, warm thing to do.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Your Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod.
1: Goodbye.